Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tranquility base here. The Eagle has landed. Rocket tranquility. We copy you on the ground. That's one small step for man. One it was really dramatic, rough terrain, cratered, hilly, and I kept thinking, nobody's ever been here before. I'm on the moon. Hello everyone, welcome to Living History and the second instalment of our special episodes commemorating the 50th anniversary of the Apollo moon landings. Last week we spoke to Brian Odom, a historian at NASA's Space Center in Alabama, and if you didn't listen to that interview, go back and look it up, it was absolutely fascinating. But we should remember that the Apollo landing wasn't just about America. There was also very strong involvement from Australia. And it's something that people perhaps don't know very much about. Australia's very important involvement in the Apollo program and particularly Apollo 11, the Apollo mission that landed on the moon. So today I'm speaking to John Sarkissian, who is a scientist at the CSIRO radio telescope at Parks, the famous dish that we've all seen in the movie that beamed signals from the moon during the moon landing and it was wonderful to speak to John about the work that they do at Parks and the history of this magnificent piece of scientific equipment and the contribution Australia played to the moon landings. So let's hear from John about the radio telescope at Parks. John thanks so much for joining us it's fantastic to be talking to you live from Parks. Well it's a pleasure speaking with you too Matt and I'm really looking forward to it. Tell me about this this fantastic dish that's out there. I mean, everyone's seen the movie. We've seen incredible photos of this huge piece of scientific equipment and, as they said in the movie, in the middle of a sheep paddock. Tell us a little bit about the dish. How long has it been there? Why was it originally built? What's it for? The Parkes Radio Telescope has been described as one of the world's great research instruments. It was commissioned back in October 1961 and... Um, um, when it was built, it was only intended to have a lifetime of 20 years or so. But this year we're commemorating 58 years of operation. Um, and the reason for that is because we've continually upgraded the telescope and uh, ensured that it remains at the very forefront of world radio astronomy. The, um, the, the, the telescope, um, when it was built, was the second largest but most advanced radio telescope in the world. Um, and um, it incorporated many innovative design features that have since become standard on all large single dish 
radio telescopes, and which is why it looks like the archetypal, you know, radio telescope and and tracking antenna and so on. Um, from within just the first year alone, um, it made significant. Dis- the astronomers using it were able to make significant discoveries. So, for example, um, they discovered the magnetic field of the Milky Way galaxy. A few months later, they discovered the um, or were able to pinpoint and realize the significance of quasars, which are the most distant known objects in in the universe. And then later in that first year, um, Parkes tracked Mariner 2 when it flew by Venus, the first ever interplanetary space mission. Since then, the telescopes made countless discoveries. We're still doing great world-class science, still making discoveries that are totally reshaping and revolutionizing our understanding of the universe. It's essentially just a glorified radio antenna, 64 meters in diameter. Um, And because it's so large, it's extremely sensitive. But because we use it to detect the radio emissions from the stars, we refer to it as a radio telescope. Um, But whenever you say telescope to the general public, the first thing everybody imagines is something you look through, like Galileo's telescope, for example. Um, But essentially, we're just extremely sensitive radio antenna that's designed to to detect and study the radio emissions from the from the stars. So John it was built in 1961. This was at the height of the space race. Was was the purpose of the radio telescope to assist with that space race or was it for a whole range of scientific endeavors of which space travel was just one? That's right. It was actually Australia founded the science of help found the science of radio astronomy because in the immediate post-war years Many of the engineers and scientists within CSIRO's radiophysics um, laboratory, during the war, they, they developed radar for use in the Pacific theatre. But following the war, the, the team was kept together and they, um, they, they decided to try and investigate these mysterious hisses and noises they were hearing in their radar sets um, whenever the sun rose and 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 so on, and so um, following the war, when they were free of all of the other wartime responsibilities, they devoted their time to try and determine what these other objects were that they were detecting, and and very very quickly they were able to pin them down to sunspots on the sun, to extra galactic radio sources like colliding galaxies, supernova remnants, and so on. So very quickly, Australia established itself as the world one of the world leaders in the science. But very quickly, um, they um, the, the equipment they were using, the old w- surplus wartime equipment, like the old Yagi antenna, similar to the to antennas that were similar to um, 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 television aerials, um, they they became obsolete after a few years, and they began to see, you know, what's what 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 should the next step in the development of radio astronomy be? And Edward Taffy Bowen, who was the chief of the radio physics division. He decided that the best all-round instrument to um, continue the world-class science at, at, at radio physics um, should be a, a large, steer, fully steerable radio telescope. And so he found that the, he was able to get the funding to to construct the telescope, have it designed to CSRO specifications. And so subsequently, the telescope was was built and, and commissioned in October 1961, and it became, at that time, the leading radio telescope in the world, the most advanced um, and so on. But it had, as I mentioned before, it had so many innovative design features that even before the telescope's construction was completed, in, um, 
1960, NASA had approached the CSIRO and proposed including the, the telescope in its fledgling deep space network, which was a, an array of three stations that NASA was planning around the globe so they could keep continuous track of spacecraft at the planets. Um, and um, but, but the CSIRO knocked back the, the offer because they wanted to use it for radio astronomy, which is why it was built, so they could continue Australia's world-leading um, science in that. But the CSIRO did agree that whenever they required a strong, stable, reliable signal at critical moments in, in their upcoming missions, then the CSIRO would agree to support those, those missions. And um, consequently, the very first interplanetary mission, mission, which was Mariner 2, when it flew by Venus in December of 1962, the Parkes telescope tracked the spacecraft as a test to see how well an instrument this large could um, detect um, the signal from such vast distances. The test was so successful that NASA decided that the next generation of, of antennas that they were planning, the large aperture antennas, would all be 64 metres in diameter, just like the Parkes telescope. And so consequently, the first of those big antennas was built in um, Goldstone in 1966. And then the next, the next two in, at Tidbin near Canberra and Madrid in Spain were built um, and completed in the early 1970s to, to complete the, the array of these really large antennas and so on. So Parks not only um, contributed towards the missions, it played a, an extremely critical role in terms of the design and um, construction of the, the large the large aperture antennas in the deep space network. It's absolutely extraordinary, John. I had no idea Australia was leading the way in this, uh, in this technology. Why, why was Parks selected as the site for this antenna? The original work that CSRO was doing in radio astronomy was, was in Sydney. Um, they had various field stations in, around Sydney. The most famous was at Dover Heights, so the cliff tops. They're looking out over the Pacific Ocean, and they they were able to to do some some of the the, the groundbreaking work there, which is quite amazing. But when it came time to build a really large antenna, which was going to be many orders of magnitude more sensitive, then building it in Sydney was just not not on, because the radio emissions from all electrical equipment, man-made equipment, you know, radios and car ignition systems and or you know, any piece of radio equipment emits radio energy, would very easily overwhelm the extremely weak cosmic signals that the telescope is designed to detect. So they needed to they needed a site that was more distant, um, in a remote location that was free of radio interference. So they looked all around New South Wales. They found a site um, just to the north of Parks about 26 kilometres, that seemed ideal. There, towards the east, there's a, a, a small mountain range, the, um, the Harvey Ranges, that shield us from the radio emissions from the larger population centres further east, such as Sydney, Bathurst, Orange and so on. So it was a very radio-quiet area. And also it was, climatically, it was, it, was a, it was pretty good because, as you could imagine, the Parkes Telescope resembles a large beach umbrella. And just like a beach umbrella, when the wind blows, it puts a lot of force on the dish. Even a light breeze puts a lot of loading on the dish. And so you needed a, an area that had relatively low winds. They, it, they also needed to be a um, geologically stable, so they didn't want earthquakes and anything like that. But also, um, they didn't want it to be snowing either, because you know, if, if snow builds up on the, the dish structure, it can hamper operations and so on. 
Um, and so for, for all those reasons, and in, in addition, it was about five hours drive from Sydney. So the engineers there could drive to parks, do their work and drive back in reasonable time. And so for those reasons, parks seemed an ideal location. But to um, um, the icing on the cake for choosing parks was that the local council supported it and actually um, um, offered to cover some of the cost of establishing the, the site, such as putting in the roads and the power and so on, um, which greatly um, helped in the, um, um, in the funding of the, the telescope. And so that's how it came to, to be at parks. It was various reasons, but it was uh, um, um, at the time, the primary reason was they needed it to be free of radio interference. And this was a very good site at the time. So you mentioned, John, that NASA were keen to include parks in their uh, ground stations for, for their space missions. And in 1961, this was at the height of the space race, the Americans versus the Russians trying to, trying to get ahead in space. What was parks used for in those earlier space missions? Was it used at all or was it only later in the Apollo program that it, uh, that it was used? No, um, parks was used in, from, from the very beginning um, because for, for many years it was the most advanced radio telescope and NASA was just planning and, and designing and building their, their array of antennas. Um, the, the, the initial deep space network had an array of 26-metre diameter antennas or 85 feet and um, they were actually modified radio astronomy antennas from the um, Bloor Knox company in the US. But um, they needed the, the, the next... The, the next generation, the really large, large antennas. And for many years, it was it was parks that was involved. In the Northern Hemisphere, the Jodrell Bank Dish was um, would track some spacecraft, um, especially of the Soviet missions, to, to, um, to alert the world as to what the Soviets were doing. But the very first mission that parks tracked was Mariner 2 at, at Venus in December of 62. And as I said before, it's, it was the first interplanetary space mission and this, the track was so successful that um, it resulted in, in NASA um, deciding to build their antennas of similar size and, and um, reasonably similar design. So it became the model for the big antennas. Three years later, in, in July of 1965, Mariner 4 flew by Mars um, and the big Goldstone dish hadn't been completed yet. So Parks was called in to act as the big big antenna in that network to ensure that the signals would come through, and consequently um, Parks was able to receive the 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 first ever close up pictures of the Martian surface, um, in fact of any planetary surface um, um, in 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 July of 1965. So the the scene was set. Um, the astronomers had worked with with the the engineers at NASA. There was a good working relationship. And in fact, the first director of the observatory, John Bolton, in the 1950s, had gone to the US from Australia, from radio physics, to introduce radio astronomy to the United States. Um, they had been lagging um, Australia in, in, in those days, believe it or not. Um, Australia was a world leader in it. The US was concentrating on, on nuclear power and nuclear energy and so on. And they felt that they needed to, to catch up in radio astronomy. So John Bolton was seconded to Caltech um, um, in, um, in 1955 to introduce radio astronomy there. Now, Caltech is where the Jet Propulsion Laboratory is, JPL. And it was JPL that was setting up the big antennas for the tracking networks. And so John already knew many of the, the engineers and astronomers and had worked closely with them. 
So when he became the director of the observatory in 1961, um, he was able to liaise with them very, very easily. In fact, engineers came to Parkes to study the telescope for six months. John had arranged it all. And so in those first tracks with um, Mariner 2 at Venus and with Mariner 4 in, um, at Mars in July of 65, there was already a very close, very good working relationship between CSIRO and, and NASA. So in October of 1968, John was visiting Caltech um, when he was invited to a dinner at the, to, at the home of one of the engineers there, um, Bob Leeton who was the PI, the principal investigator for the Mariner 4 mission. Anyway, during the dinner, John was asked if he could make available the Parkes telescope for the upcoming Apollo 11 mission, the first lunar landing mission. And so because human lives are at stake, both he and, and Edward Taffy Bowen agreed that CSRO would support the mission. And so that's how Parkes um, became involved in that because it was the very first lunar landing mission, um, NASA wanted the most advanced, most sensitive, most, um, in fact, the best, period, radio telescopes and, and tracking antennas tracking the lunar module, especially for those few hours that the lunar module was on the lunar surface because um, they hadn't been able, they weren't sure just how strong the signal would be or what the quality would be in some, so they wanted to ensure that the most sensitive instruments were tracking, receiving the signal, so Parks became involved in that way. Well, let's talk specifically about that Apollo Eleven mission. The you know the most probably the most famous thing the Dish has been involved in in uh, in its lifetime. Let's also talk about the movie. I mean, everyone would have seen the movie that came out in two thousand about the Dish from uh, from Working Dog. They did a great job, a great, a, a very funny and a, and a heartwarming movie. How much of what we saw in that movie was the reality of what was happening at Parks during that Apollo Eleven landing? The Dish, the film The Dish, which came out in 2000, is a wonderful film. I'll state that from the beginning. I love it. You know, it's it's a very heart, um, good-natured, um, warm-hearted film, um, which told the story in a in a slightly quirky manner, if you like, of of Parks' involvement. But the thing always should keep in mind: it's not a documentary. It was a film that took a little bit of artistic license in terms of the characters and the events and so on. But essentially. Um, you know, they took events that occurred at Parks um, during Apollo 11, combined it with events that occurred at some of the other tracking stations, um, both for Apollo 11 and other missions, mixed it all together um, and um, exaggerated some aspects, made up a few others and and told the, the, the story that was loosely based on the events here. Um, now, the um, but they did get the gist of the story correct in that, it was Australian facilities that received the, the famous Apollo 11 moonwalk TV and related to 600 million people worldwide, one-sixth one of mankind at the time. And on the day, the, the winds were, were true. There were severe winds here. In fact, if anything, in the film, they didn't make it they, – they, they just weren't able to make it as, as violent and dramatic as it was in real life. You know, they just can't – you can't really manufacture a big windstorm when you're filming it, uh, making a film. So, um, if anything, the 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 windstorm at, at Parks um, um, was even more severe than predict than, than depicted in the in the film. But they did get the story, the general story, correct. In that Parks received the best and the bulk of the 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 the, the, um, the moonwalk TV, relaying it to 600 billion people worldwide. Um, 
I always joke that, um, you know, the astronauts may well have been on the sea of tranquility on the day, but it was well and truly the ocean of storms at parks on, on, on that famous day. Um, but it's a, it's a great film. I, I, I do. I love it very much as, as I'm, but then again, I'm biased, I guess. So, um, but, um, but always keep in mind that it's, it's not a documentary. It's, it's a, it's a motion picture that took um, some artistic license and um, amalgamated some characters to, to simplify the story um, and so on. But Australia's involvement was actually extremely, extremely involved. And, um, and, um, Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Um, and, and critical. So, John, tell us about the reality. What was happening at the radio telescope in those crucial days and moments of man walking on the moon? Parks became involved in October in the Apollo missions in October 1968 when NASA requested its in, um, inclusion, um, specifically during the short few hours that the astronauts were on the lunar surface. So in order to prepare for that, um, meetings were held in, in early 1969 and some. And on the initial original mission plan, Parks was to be a backup to the big Goldstone antenna, the 64-meter antenna at Goldstone. Um, the, the, the lunar module was to land um, on the moon at 6.17 a.m. on the 21st of July, 1969, in Australia. And then shortly after they landed, they were to come out and do the perform the moonwalk and so on, and then get back inside, have a sleep, and then take off. Um, now, the moon at Parks on that day was not set to rise until 1.02 in the afternoon, around lunchtime. So the moonwalk would have been over by the time the the um, the moon had risen at Parks. And so um, it was designed to be there as a backup in case there was a delay in the moonwalk or or they had to take off early or whatever. But about two months into before the mission, NASA decided that the astronauts would actually go to sleep first. They would land and then have a little sleep, six hour rest, and then and then they'd wake up refreshed and come out and do the do the moonwalk. And so the moonwalk was rescheduled to occur at about 4.21 in the afternoon um, when the moon would have been high overhead of Parks by then, but it would have set at Goldstone about 20 or so minutes earlier. And so Parks went from being the backup to the prime receiving station for the television on the lunar surface. And um, so everything had to be suddenly duplicated. They NASA always wanted backups for everything. And so... 
the receivers were put in place, the, 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 the radio receiving equipment, the processing equipment, the microwave relays, everything. Um, and everything was ready to go. Um, the astronauts um, eventually did did land on, on the moon, right on schedule at 6.17. And then, um, and just when, they, you know, they were thinking of going, the NASA's plan had them resting, the um, the astronauts decided that, no, they're not going to sleep after all. They're just too excited. Neil Armstrong's heart rate was 150 beats per minute when he landed. There was no way they were going to sleep. The adrenaline rush and excitement would have just meant that they would have sat there awake for many hours and then come out more tired than they were. So they decided to come out early. Um, and um, and as a result, it looked like, oh, no, it's all going to be over before it even rose at parks. The moon had risen at parks. And so um, – Suddenly, Goldstone assumed the role of being the prime receiving station. Now, the astronauts took their time in in preparing to exit. They donned their spacesuits and everything and slowly depressurized the cabin. So by the time they were about to to emerge, the moon was getting closer to its to its horizon. The telescope's horizon is thirty degrees above the true horizon. For various reasons, we can't tip all the way to the to the true horizon. So the moon was inching its way up, and it looked like you know that Parks might actually get at least some of the moonwalk um, 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 as as the moon rose. However, with the dish fully tipped over, waiting for the moon to rise as the hours hour got closer, um, a violent storm hit the telescope. A squall just just struck the telescope there were winds and in fact there were two sharp gusts of 110 kilometers an hour that slammed the dish back against its zenith axis pinions causing the tower of the telescope to shudder and sway the people inside were concerned john bolton the director held his nerve checked the strain gauges to make sure everything was okay and just as buzz Aldrin switched on the the, the tv camera the moon just moved into the field of view of the Parkes Radio Telescope. But they were able to receive the signal simultaneously with the um, their colleagues at Goldstone and at Honeysuckle Creek. And so at the beginning of the moonwalk, NASA began, um, released the pictures received from Goldstone to the world. However, um, the pictures were of very poor quality. They were upside down, very dark. You could barely make out um, anything at all. Um, so they then switched to the pictures being received from Honeysuckle Creek. Um, hoping that the pictures were better, and they were, they were, they were better. And so it was during that period that Armstrong stepped on the moon. When they switched back again to Goldstone, the picture had gone negative, so they switched back to Honeysuckle, and then back to Goldstone when they'd corrected it. But the pictures were still pretty poor. But by, but when the when they finally switched to Parks, about eight minutes into the broadcast, the picture was so much better. They stayed with Parks for the for the remainder of the moonwalk, um, and so um, the picture quality just improved. You can actually see the, the 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 marked improvement in the TV when they switched to it. But throughout the entire moonwalk, the moon, the winds remained um, very high, um, and the telescope continued to operate well outside all safety limits. In fact, later on in the in the in the broadcast from the moon, the 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 it, it began to hail at parks, yet the picture did not signal the the TV signal did not degrade at all, and so NASA remained with the parks t- pictures. So thanks to the the parks radio telescope, the world was able to witness that 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 historic moment um, with the greatest possible clarity, and um, the signals from Australia 
uh, from parks were relayed by microwave links to the OTC terminal at Paddington in Sydney, and um, and from there to Houston via satellite and so on. And um, but before the the signal went to Houston, it was split off and sent to the ABC Gore Hill Studios for distribution to the Australian networks. And consequently, because in Australia we didn't have to relay the signal all the way to the US and back. Um, Australian audiences actually saw the moonwalk about 300 milliseconds before the rest of the world, or about a third of a second. And so um, we were able to, to see that. But the, the, the astonishing thing is that on the days leading up to the moonwalk, the weather was perfect. There was, it was still no wind, very little wind, and everything was, was working really well. But on the day of the moonwalk, the, the storm hit, and in fact, those 110 kilometre hour gusts were the highest wind speeds recorded at parks in the first 10 years of the telescope's operation. Quite astonishing, really, when you think about it. And, um, it it's, it's been, um, we haven't had winds that high, um, we don't get winds that high at, at parks very often. Um, and with the dish fully tipped over, it was a very critical moment, yet we were able to receive those pictures um, 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 throughout so we were really that really was an amazing achievement there um, in terms of that and of course it, the success of the mission was so great that NASA contracted parks to, to support all subsequent manned lunar landing missions especially Apollo 12 and, and 15 and we weren't supposed to track Apollo 13 um, but because of the accident they were called called in at very very short notice and because of its large sensitivity we were able to track the the spacecraft pick up the extremely feeble signals, which were a thousand times weaker than the Apollo 11 mission, and help save the mission from disaster. So, um, um, so the the events at Parks were really quite amazing on the day, uh, with the with the, the wind speeds, the the moonwalk beginning just as the moon rose at Parks, the switching with it, and then the sudden improvement when they did use Parks and so on. So, really was an amazing amazing day. I think it's something, John, we should all be proud of, and I, I, I doubt that Australians know enough about it. It's, it's just extraordinary, the, the breadth of the support that we were giving to NASA in that description you've given there. It really sums up to me the, the collective effort of the Apollo program because it was, as you say, it was an American initiative, but it was something that brought people together all over the world. Um, it, that's a, it's just a really good example to me of the importance of this combined effort, wasn't it? That it wasn't just America on its own doing these specific things. There was people all over the world who were contributing to this effort to get man to the moon. That's right. You know, in the US, at its height, there were 400,000 people working on Apollo. 400,000. You know, imagine the cost. <laughs> it's incredible. In fact, the cost of Apollo by the end um, was um, um, over $25 billion, US dollars at the time. Now, in today's money, you're looking at around, that would be around $500 billion, give it, depending on how you count the money. So it's an incredible, half a trillion dollars is an incredible amount of money. But what? But it, but it all began in 1961 as a Cold War exercise, you know, because 1961 was the critical year. Everything went wrong for the new Kennedy, Kennedy administration, you know, um, when Gagarin was launched in April, April the 12th. Just um, five days later, there was the Bay of Pigs disaster, um, where the United States was humiliated by Castro and his forces um, in the in the attempted um, invasion and um, and retaking of Cuba. Um, in June, 
there was um, the, the the Vienna summit between Khrushchev and and Kennedy, where um, Kennedy was was treated like a a, a schoolboy and treated very poorly, and Khrushchev even threatened war. Um, in in August, the Berlin Wall went up. In October, there was the standoff, um, military standoff um, in Berlin that that almost led to war also. Um, and then at the end of October '61, the 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 the, um, the Soviet Union detonated the last largest ever nuclear device, 60 megatons, um, in the Tsar Bomba test, which was quite hot. So the Cold War was was really heating up, and and the entire Apollo program should be seen in the light of the events of 1961 and the Kennedy and his administration resolved that they had to do something to stand up to the to the Soviets and to um, to demonstrate the superiority of the um, of, of free countries and the democratic processes and so on. And so one way of doing that was to initiate a program that would demonstrate how, the economies and the and how free people could 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 combine and work together to achieve uh, 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 what would what would previously be thought of as an um, unimaginable goal and an unimaginable achievement, and so Kennedy came up with the and or rather his administration came up with the goal of landing a man on the moon within the decade, and um, and the reason they chose that because in those days the Soviets had much bigger rockets that could lift heavier objects, put bigger things in space. So if they would, if they had chosen a race to, say, put a space station in Earth orbit, the Soviets likely would have beaten them. Um, whatever they came up with, the Soviets, with their advantage in heavy lift rockets, would have beaten them. But in order to get to the moon, um, both sides had to develop entirely new rockets that were orders of magnitude more than what they had. And so by going... Choosing the, a race to land a man on the moon, um, it put the US on level footing with the Soviet Union so they could start even and um, and then get going from there. Um, Kennedy had the slight advantage in that a lot of the technology had been developed in the Eisenhower years, the F-1 rocket. The Saturn series of rockets were under development. The big engine, the F-1 engine was was being developed, the the development of, of computing, of fuel cells and all these other things had begun in the um, Eisenhower administration. And that's why um, Kennedy's advisors thought that, you know, if they could start now and with sufficient funds and with a crash program that was of national significance, there was a good chance that they could they could actually beat them, which is why he chose that. Now, over the years... Um, as it developed in 1961, the the support was was in Congress was was very high um, because they they felt something had to be done. However, as the years went by, especially after October 1962 with the um, Cuban Missile Crisis, people started to have second thoughts about it, and support for Apollo began to wane. And in fact, in 1963, NASA uh, the Congress cut NASA's budget, and it looked like the entire Apollo program would be would be cancelled would not be able to be achieved in the time frame. However, um, very unfortunate but for, for, for the United States, but for Apollo, it was a bit of luck, I guess. Um, President Kennedy was assassinated. And, and in the national mourning that followed, the Congress um, 
um, reinstated the full funding for the, the Apollo program because and they turned Apollo into a, um, um, a monument to a fallen president and they felt that they had to, to continue with it. And so Apollo was able to continue um, in the time frame given. Um, initially, Kennedy wanted before the end of his second term, um, but his advisor said, that's a little bit too tight. Let's just say the end of the decade. Um, and then he asked, well, when's the end of the decade? Is it 1969, end of 69 or 1970? And his, and his advisor, advisor said, keep it am ambiguous. Because if for some reason they are delayed and they have to go to end of 70, then they can still claim they did it by the end of the decade. Um, and so Apollo progressed, but at no time did it ever have um, majority public support. There was only one two-week period in the middle of 1969, July 1969, where it had majority support. That was during Apollo 11. Um, and even then it was only 53%. So because people realized, you know, the mood of the country had changed. What began as this Cold War um, agenda in 1961 to stand up to the Soviets and do something, by 1969, the country itself had changed. The entire culture was different. You know, it was no longer this gung-ho thing. The United States was mired in, a, in an unpopular war with mounting casualties. There were social upheavals throughout the country. There were assassinations and all sorts of things happening. And... Um, um, riots in the major cities, and and it was really quite depressing. And um, so, what began as this Cold War thing in 1970 had morphed totally by 1969. The country itself had changed. And so, um, by the time that Apollo was realised and Armstrong planted his left boot on the moon, um, it became it was seen not as a big American effort. It was seen as a human effort. It was something that all humanity became part of. When the plaque the astronauts unveiled on the moon read, we came in peace for all mankind. It didn't read, you know, we beat the Soviets. Um, and, um, but it was, you know, it was seen by all of mankind as a major human achievement. And it's in that, um, in that form that we remember it Apollo now. We see it as a great inspiring human achievement, a demonstration of what hum, human beings can do if given the will and the resources and the cooperation to, to do it. And, um, and even today, you know, the old saying goes, you know, if we can put a man on the moon, why can't we fill in the blank, you know? Um, but Apollo was a project that could be achieved provided you gave enough money for it and Many people have argued that um, Apollo was a program that rightly should have occurred in the middle of this century, um, but Kennedy had had dragged it from the t middle of the 21st century, dragged it and plonked it in the middle of the 20th century instead, um, for because of the in 1961 of the, the Cold War scenarios that were there, the, the really the dire situation that the United States saw itself in it needed to do something um, much better to do something without having to fire a shot and achieve unity than then have the cold war heat up um, as it almost did in in october of 62 in the cuban missile crisis so i always say you know that that the that when you go out and have a look at the moon today and look up 
um, it's a very different moon to the one you, that people would have seen in 1961 because the moon we see today is a moon that's been touched by, by man. Um, and that has colored everything we've done ever since. You know, We live in a world today that knows that people have been on the moon. When we um, and that that affects people, you know, it affects your thinking and and your outlook and so on. Um, it's inspired generations of, of of engineers and and scientists and and astronomers and so on. And so it's it's had a, a, a deeply profound effect on on people. And um, um, and it's in that guise that it's remembered. Um, it's it's seldom remembered as a Cold War. Um, phenomena, a Cold War reaction, but it's always remembered nowadays as an inspiring, uplifting a thing um, event that was achieved um, um, on behalf of all mankind to to show the best of us. You know, it may have started with the worst motives, but it, it certainly ended with the very best. Thank you, John. It's been a really wonderful insight into not just the program itself, but also Australia's absolutely crucial role in this incredible story. And I'm sure this will encourage more people to learn about Parks, the radio telescope, and Australia's really important work in the whole space program. So, John, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure, um, Matt. And um, I look forward to people visiting the telescope and they can come in and see the, the great instrument themselves here. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.